You're listening to the Van Moody Podcast. Our passion is transforming the world by transforming lives. In today's episode, we'll examine the origins of the myth of black inferiority. When we examine God's word, we find the truth. Don't be selective in your selection of scripture. Let's get started. I want to start in Colossians chapter 2, beginning of verse number 8. Colossians chapter 2, beginning at verse number 8. And this is the Apostle Paul talking to the church. And he says to this Colossian church, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces. Elemental spiritual forces literally means the, the forces of the world, right? Uh, another way that this is translated are demonic forces, all right? Then drop down to 1 Timothy chapter 4 in verse 7, and I don't want to show you this in the New International Version, and then I want to show it to you in the New Century Version, because both translations and several others, depending on the Bible that you have, help open this up. This is now Paul, once again, talking, but he's talking to his mentee, um, his mentee Timothy, who is now pastoring. And Paul is at uh, sort of the end of his life, and he is giving mentorship wisdom to Timothy about how to lead God's people. He says to Timothy, have nothing to do with godless myths. And old wives' tales, rather train yourself to be godly. Now, I want you to see how the New Century Version translates the same verse. Instead of saying, have nothing to do with godless myths, the New Century Version says, but do not follow foolish stories that disagree with God's truth, but train yourself to serve God. So once again, the Apostle Paul tells the Colossian church, don't let anybody take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies that that are based on human tradition and demonic forces, elemental spiritual forces. Then he turns right around and tells Timothy, you got to be careful because as a leader, don't have anything to do with godless myths, foolish stories that disagree with God's truth. So we go into week two of this series of race, reconciliation, and righteousness. We're going to walk through God's word this morning, and I want to talk about the myth of black inferiority. The myth of black inferiority. Y'all look like y'all turned out. Turned out. You're just like zoned out already. Y'all with me? All right, all right. Some of you are like, let me get ready for this. My, my goal as a, as a high school student preparing for college, my dream goal in terms of where I wanted to study was Duke University. Um, I, I've always grown up in Atlanta. Duke was my favorite and still is my favorite college basketball program. And my dream, I was a basketball player in high school, and my dream was to not only go to Duke, but to hopefully uh, play for uh, Duke University. And so, you know, as it related to me getting prepared for college, uh, I only had one goal, even though there were great universities around Atlanta and other great universities around the country, my goal was to go to Duke. And my mother made it very simple. I was raised by a single mom, and my mom made it very simple. She said, sweetie, I understand you have a goal um, and a dream to go to Duke, but here's what's going to happen. You're going to go where you get the most scholarship money. And I said, but mama, I want to go to Duke. She said, I, I understand all of that. She said, but, but you're going to ultimately go where you get the most scholarships to attend the university. And so sure enough, I had an appointment to meet with the Duke recruiter. And uh, it was a kind of college fair experience in Atlanta. And I got off the bus, got into the arena where all of the colleges were, and I made a beeline to go to see the Duke recruiter. And as I was heading towards the Duke recruiter, I passed a table where there was a recruiter from DePaul University. 
and he grabbed me by the arm. And I thought, well, why is this stranger grabbing me? And so I just kind of moved and I said, sir, please leave me alone. He said, no, 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 I'm trying to get your attention. He said, what's your name? I gave him my name. He said, what's your SAT, store, SAT score? I gave him my SAT score. He said, what's your GPA? He gave him my GPA. And he said, man, do you understand that you could get a full academic scholarship to DePaul? I said, well, I don't even, I have never even heard of DePaul. I don't know where it is. Leave me alone. I'm going to, I'm going to Duke. And sure enough, he said, well, okay, okay, just give me your name, give me your information, and I'll let you go. Gave my name, gave him a contact information, gave my address, and I said, man, I'm, I'm out of here. Went to meet with the Duke recruiter. Had a great interview with the Duke recruiter, but they were a little bit slow in deciding how much money they were going to give me to attend the university. And while we were waiting on that, on that magical full ride to Duke, the DePaul recruiter almost basically stalked my mother and I. It seemed like every week he was calling. Seemed like every, every time he, he was coming to the South, he would come by the school and see me. He even took my mother to dinner, uh, my mother and I to dinner several times, just trying to sell us on this idea of DePaul University. And sure enough, I got a little bit of money from Duke, but I got a full academic scholarship to go to DePaul. Didn't know anything about Greencastle, Indiana, but mama said, baby, wherever you get the most money is where you're going. And sure enough, she drove me from Atlanta. We drove through Tennessee and Kentucky and, and dropped me off in Indiana. She said, mama's going to be praying for you. And sure enough, and I sat there crying like a baby, like where in the world am I? And I never forget that when it was time for me to register for class, I went through the, the registration process, and this was before everything was online, and then I had to go into uh, the registrar's kind of team office where people would, would sign off on the final you know, things that you needed to get registered. And, and I never forget that I, I came up to the table, and there was, there was a white woman that was there who worked for the registrar's department, and, and I gave her my card that had all of my classes and stuff on it that I, that I knew I needed to register for, and she looked at the card, and she looked at me, she looked at the car and she looked at me and then she said, mm. Then she looked at me and she said, I don't think you have what it takes to be here. And I said, well, ma'am, I just, I just want to get registered. She said, mm-hmm. I don't think you have what it takes to be here. Now, she had never had a conversation with me outside of that one encounter. Never seen her before in my life. She never took the time to get to know me. So how in the world did she conclude that I didn't have what it took to do well at that university? I want to submit to you that she believed the myth. Paul admonishes the Colossian church to not allow people to take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies. He's, 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 he's teaching the believers in this Colossian church that a part of spiritual maturity is that you have got to be aware that there are hollow, meaning empty, baseless, factless myths that you cannot allow your life and your mind and even your perception to be swayed by. Then he turns around and, and says to Timothy, if you are going to be a spiritual leader, if you are going to be an effective pastor, Timothy, then you, you cannot buy into godless myths. In essence, Paul is saying that that the spiritual marker, if you will, for maturity, one of the spiritual markers for maturity is that you don't believe the myths, that you are not gullible for garbage. And I want to start there because one of the most deceitful and deceptive and demonic myths that has fueled the racial divide at the heart of our communities and our country is this myth of black inferiority. 
It's really interesting that DePaul is a Methodist university. And many of the faculty members, when I was there, they considered themselves good church-going people. But for some reason or another, this woman didn't know me, never had a conversation with me, saw my skin color, and believed the myth. So first of all, you must understand the power of a myth. The power of a myth. Number one, myths are unfounded, unsubstantiated beliefs and traditions that are passed down over time often in story form as a means of justifying and explaining things that lack historical and scientific fact. That's so important, I need to say it again. Myths are unfounded, unsubstantiated beliefs and traditions that are passed down over time, often in story form. And these stories are means of justifying and explaining things that lack historical and scientific fact. But the problem is that myths can be powerful because when they are believed, they become the basis of our actions as individuals, as families, and even as a society at large. And one of the biggest reasons why the Apostle Paul told Timothy and even told the Colossian church that you guys got to guard against myths and guard against deceptive and empty philosophies is because when those kinds of things are accepted by a large number of people, it starts to become embedded in the culture. And when it begins to be embedded in the culture, it has disastrous effects. What do you mean it has disastrous effects, Bishop? Well, one of the disastrous effects is that many areas of life end up being defined by these myths. Education, politics, economics, science, so many other areas of life end up being defined by these myths. But then the other de devastating thing about myths is that myths, in a sense, can become self-fulfilling prophecies. What do you mean self-fulfilling prophecies? I'm going to ask the question since you're not talking to me. What I mean by self-fulfilling prophecies is, for an example, if all Pastor Quentin hears as a child, for an example, and, and, and if all he hears as a child, and if he is the same thing over and over and over again from all of the environments that he's in as he's grown up, you're never going to be anything, you're never going to be anything, you're never going to be anything, then at some point, he's going to begin to wonder, well, maybe this is true. I can't be anything. I can't do anything. And often people become resigned to that fact, not because it's true, but because that's what they've heard over and over and over and over again. And so often myths then become self-fulfilling prophecies. Part of the reason why Jesus had such a hard time dealing with the Pharisees during his day, during his earthly ministry, was because their traditions and their myths had become so embedded in the culture of Jewish life that they would not accept the truth even when it was right in front of their face. The Son of God was in their midst and they missed him totally. And they ultimately crucified him because of their traditions and their myths. This is a part of what prompted Jesus to say to the Pharisees that it's your traditions of men that, made the world of, that has made the word of God of non-effect. And so myths can be very powerful. But secondly, let's talk about the origin of this myth, the origin of this myth of black inferiority. Y'all still with me? I want to show you where this myth came from. Because the racial divide started with this myth. It started with this lie. I want to show this to you, and I want to take my time and walk you through this, because one of the biggest reasons why there is division and discord among races in our country and in our society is this myth. And it is also this myth, listen to me, that was used to justify slavery. Teach Bishop, I am. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. Genesis chapter 9, verse 18. It says this. The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham 
was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. One translation says over the whole earth. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard, and when he was uh, drunk, or when he drank some of the wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it across their shoulders, and they walked in backwards and covered their father's naked body. Now, before I finish this, let me explain it. Noah gets out of the ark, plants a vineyard, and has too much to drink. I guess he just, I don't know, was so excited about freedom. <laughs> Before you judge him, I don't know how you would feel after you were in an ark all those, those days. But he comes out of the ark, plants a vineyard, begins to drink some of the wine of the vineyard, and gets drunk. Ham is walking by and sees his father laying naked and, and, and maybe just pauses and, and is like, what, what in the world? Is going on. He runs to tell his other brothers, Shem and Japheth, and they don't respond like Ham. Ham, Ham pauses and like, you know, Dad, what is going on with you? Get yourself together. Shem and Japheth say, well, no, we're not going to look upon our father's nakedness. So they, they have this, this covering that they put on their backs, and they, they walk in backwards. They won't look at their father's nakedness. They walk in backwards and, and, and they, I guess, feel for his feet or something. And then they throw the covering over him. Now let's pick the story up. It says, when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be who? Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now, this is called historically the Hamitic curse. And so many traditional old school Bibles would even have footnotes by this story referring to the Hamitic curse. For years, in seminaries and, I mean, for hundreds of years, this story was taught as the origin of where the Hamitic curse came from. The Hamitic curse suggests that the reason that African Americans were forced to be slaves is because it was the fulfillment of this prophecy. Some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, how, how do we get there? Well, the other thing you need to understand is that Ham is the father of black people in the Bible. I'm really going to unpack this a lot more next week, but I want you to stay with me. You still here? Boy, y'all quiet, I'm telling you. Ham is the father of black people in, in the Bible. How do we know that? Well, look at Genesis chapter 10 and look at verse number 6. Keep reading Genesis 10 and verse 6. It says, the sons of Ham, he had four sons. The NIV says Cush, Egypt. If you have a different translation, Egypt is translated Mizraim. Put and Canaan. These are the names of Ham's four sons. Let me break this down. The word Cush means the black one. It means, it means the dark one. That's what Cush means, all right? Cush is the name of Ethiopia. So, so if you're trying to understand the connection, Cush is Ethiopia. Mizraim, Egypt, is Egypt. Put is Libya. Canaan, we know, is in Israel. So based on where Noah's sons, remember they come out of the ark and the Bible says, it's through these individuals, Noah and his sons, that the whole world is populated. Where Ham's descendants go to what is now Ethiopia, that's Cush, Egypt, that's Mizraim, Put, that's Libya, Canaan, 
That's in Israel. So now, this notion of the Hamitic curse comes from the fact that, that people of color, black people, when they began to bring them from Africa to the New World, they began to pull people from different parts of Africa and some of where they began to pull Africans from, Egypt and Ethiopia, in addition to other parts of West Africa. Now let me pause here for a second and say this. There are some historical books that will try to lead you to believe that people in Ethiopia and Egypt, that they are not people of color. That's not true. As a matter of fact, one of the great opportunities my wife and I had many, many years ago, she was pregnant with, with our daughter Eden, is, is we actually led a group to Egypt. And you know the color of, of the Egyptians and Ethiopians, not just because of conjecture, but if you go into those parts of Africa and look at the artifacts, you go to Egypt and, and you go into the caves and you tour the sphinxes and, and, and you tour the pyramids, and, and literally it's art all over the place of how they, how they colored themselves, how they represented themselves, how they saw themselves, and the artwork is very clear. As a matter of fact, they're going to show you some pictures. Uh, that they're going to just begin to scroll through. These are Egyptian pictures from inside um, places in Egypt. Now, what color does that look like to you? These are literally Egyptian pictures. And they're not only um, Egyptian pictures, but, but now these are Ethiopian pictures. These are early Ethiopian pictures. He, he's got an afro. Do you see that? One of those pictures looked like my uncle with the, with the beard. You missed it. But these are ancient Ethiopian pictures. So what I want you to understand is, first of all, when we start talking about the descendants of Ham, we're talking about people of color in various hues. So the slave trade started with the Portuguese and the Spanish, who were the first Europeans to start the slave trade. The slave trade was about labor. They needed cheap labor. So their rationale was, let's go to Africa, let's steal these Africans and force them to be our cheap labor. But the problem was the Portuguese and the Spanish were Catholic. So the way that they justified what they were doing in terms of their Catholic beliefs was this myth. They had to convince their governments and they had to convince the Catholic Church that what they were doing was right. So the way that they did it was they looked at this passage and they said, well, the curse says that, that these peoples are supposed to be slaves. Now, it started with the Portuguese and the Spanish, but it didn't stop there. Because in the New World, when America was being established, good old American Christians participated in the slave trade. And the way that they sanctioned and approved this slave trade was this myth. They, they followed the example of the Portuguese and the Spanish, and they said, well, now, we, we, this is justified because based on this verse, based on this story, the Hamitic curse, they're supposed to be slaves. Part of the reason the South is the Bible Belt is not just because we go to church in the South. Part of the reason the South is the Bible Belt and maybe if I have time on Wednesdays or in another uh, opportunity, I'll show you this chart. But there's, you can chart the denominations that own slaves. The Baptists own slaves. The Methodists own slaves. The Catholics own slaves. You can chart where they brought their slaves when they brought them to the New World because it was predominantly in places in the South. This is part of the reason why there is a high population of African-Americans who are Catholic in New Orleans, in Mobile, and also in the Caribbean. Why? Because that's where the Catholic Church brought their slaves that they owned. Oh, y'all mighty quiet. So this notion of the Bible Belt 
Well, it's not just because we go to church. It's because back during the slave trade, it's where the different denominations that owned slaves brought their slaves. But, but how did they justify it? They justified it by saying, well, wait a minute. The Hamitic curse says that they are supposed to be slaves. But this myth is not biblically true because of a couple of different reasons. What do you mean this myth is not biblically true? Well, it's not true for a couple of different reasons. Number one, go back to Genesis that we just read, and it says when Noah wakes up, he doesn't say, cursed are you, Ham. He says what? Cursed be who? Canaan. The curse was only against Canaan. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham had four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So if the curse is against Canaan, not all of his sons, how can all black people everywhere be cursed? Number one, the curse was only against Canaan. It was not against any of the other three. But then number two, the Bible places limitations on curses. Exodus chapter 20 and verse 5 says, You shall not bow down to worship them, um, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of their parents. Here it is. To the what? Third and what? Fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus is very clear that even when God curses, this is Old Testament stuff. We know that the curse was erased in Jesus Christ. But even in the Old Testament, Exodus is clear that when God curses, it only extends to three or four generations. Do you understand how many thousands of years went by from Genesis to when the slave trade started? Okay, I think you're starting to come alive just a little bit. I'll give you another reason why the curse is not biblically true. Because number three, the curse was fulfilled under Joshua. Curse be Canaan. In Joshua chapter three, Moses leads the people out of Egypt. Joshua leads them into the promised land. Does anybody remember where the promised land is? In Canaan. Joshua chapter 3 verse 10 says, this is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out before you the what? I'm, come on now, y'all got to do better than that. The first name at the top of that list that God says, I am going to drive out, I am going to dispossess so that my children can inherit the land are the Canaanites. Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Parasites, Girgashites, Amorites, Jebusites. The curse was fulfilled under Joshua. But since you are just barely talking to me, I'll give you another reason why this myth is not true. Number four, slavery by kidnapping is forbidden in the Bible and punishable by death. Exodus 21 and verse 16, literally it says, I don't want you to take my word for it, kidnappers must be put to what? Whether they are caught in possession of their victims or have already what? Sold them as slaves. So here's what I want you to see. You have, you have Christians who are justifying heinous acts because they have been perpetuating this myth that is not biblically true. But it didn't stop there because slavery was so economically significant. Slavery was the economic engine of the new world. So in addition to, to this Hamitic curse myth, leading American Christians, people like Jonathan Edwards, attempted to try to rationalize slavery even further by going to the New Testament and only looking at a few select scriptures. Scriptures like Ephesians 6 and verse 5 
that says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with a sincere heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. So they would lift up that scripture, or they would lift up scriptures like Colossians 3, 2 that says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and in reverence for the Lord. So those are the scriptures that they would point to to try to justify this heinous act of slavery. But watch this. But they ignored other scriptures. They ignored, for an example, that the Apostle Paul also told masters to treat slaves as equal brothers in Christ. Oh, in Philemon chapter 1 verse 15, Paul is in prison. And in prison, he builds a relationship with a slave. And when the slave is being released, he writes a letter to the slave masters. That's what the entire book of Philemon is about. And to the slave master, notice what Paul says. He says, maybe it's all for the best that you lost him for a while. You're getting him back now for good, and no mere slave this time, but a true Christian brother. That's what he was to me, and he'll be even more than that to you. See, they ignored these kinds of scriptures, or they, they ignored that Paul even, even said that slaves had the right to change their status if they could. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 21. I hope I'm not boring you. I hope you're giving me grace. I'm not trying to upset you. I just, I just want to bring the truth to light on this subject. Do you hear me? 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 21, Paul says, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although if you can gain your freedom, do so. See, they, they ignored these scriptures. They ignored that the Bible, for an example, is very clear that to show any kind of preference, listen to me, the Bible is very clear that to show any kind of preference based on class, based on culture, and based on race is totally unacceptable to God. And those who do show those kinds of preferences are candidates for God's judgment. James chapter 2 verse 9. Let me hurry up. I'm running out of time. I, I think I'm boring you. James 2 verse 9 says this. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. See, they ignored all of the biblical truths that did not support this inferiority myth. See, if, if they would have dealt with all of these Bible references, it would have forced them to tell the whole truth. And the thing about that is truth and myths don't mix. So they were selective about which scriptures they would use so that they could continue to justify slavery and perpetuate this myth of inferiority. But lastly, I want to talk about the impact of this myth. We understand the power of this myth. Man, it's quiet in here. We, 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 we understand the origin of this myth and why this myth is not true. But now, lastly, let me talk about the impact of this myth. Because the impact of this myth has been disastrous. This is part of the reason why it, it, is, it is quite unfortunate to me. And it, and it does somewhat frustrate me a little bit. When, when some of my friends or, or some of the individuals who are from different backgrounds say things like, Well, come on. Are we still talking about this? It's been hundreds of years. Isn't it over already? Well, well no. You don't, you don't tell us, come on, let's get over the Holocaust. You don't tell us, come on, let's get over 9-11. No, no, no. And, and the truth of the matter is, while it happened hundreds of years ago, the impact we are still wrestling with to this very day. 
The reason that we can't just sweep this under the rug and ignore this is because this myth has left a devastating psychological impact in the lives of not only people, but it's at the soul of our country. What do you mean a devastating psychological impact? Well, since you're asking me, I'll, I'll share a few with you. One, one, of, one of the most devastating psychological impacts of this inferiority myth is something called a plantation mentality. See, when, when our ancestors, African-American ancestors were enslaved, there also was the insidious nature of a, of a class system that was set up even among slaves. So that certain slaves were only relegated to work in the field. But if you looked a certain way, if you were pleasing to the master, then, then you were given an opportunity to work in the house. Mm. And they, they were called house Negroes and field Negroes. And, and so then they became this animosity and this hostility between the slaves that were in the house and the slaves that were in the field, because those in the field felt like those that were in the house were better than them. And so there was this animosity, oh, you think you're better than us because, because you get to work in master's house. But that same plantation mentality is still playing itself out in the lives of African Americans because there's still this divide that, 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 if, that, that if you rise above your circumstance and, and, and maybe if you, if you go on to achieve a certain status or maybe if you speak proper English, you, 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 you run into certain African Americans who say, oh, so now you think you're better. Oh, oh, because you live uh, in that house, you think you're better than us. No, no, that is a plantation mentality. So now you've got animosity. We won't support each other. We will go to Facebook and Twitter and in and, and, and the barbershops and, and live to tear each other down. Oh, well, they're, they're a dentist now, so they think they're all of that. No, they just went to school. They, they, just, they just tried to do something to, to change their generational trajectory. Another aspect of this psychological impact is self-hatred. Listen to me. Good men wear what? Good men wear what? Bad men wear They're, they're, the vocabulary of this inferiority that is still at the heart of our culture. You know, the, 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 the stock market crash of 1929 that ushered in the Great Depression. You know, on the day that it happened, you know what they called it? And they still call it in, in history books to this very day. Black Tuesday. So, you come up in a culture where you hear this, that I'm, I'm bad, I'm nothing. I'm not of worth. And ultimately, if you're not careful, that'll lead to this notion of self-hatred. That I don't, that I'm, I'm not worth anything. I'm not, not about anything. See, if you tell a person long enough that they are less than, after a while, they'll begin to believe it. They'll begin to hate themselves. Sometimes they begin to wish that they were somebody else. This also impacts black-on-black -black crime because if I don't value my life, then guess what? I'm not going to value yours either. Looking at the time, I don't know if I could do this. Huh. Well, since you're asking, another impact, another result of this psychological impact is the belief, listen to me, that white is right. And I, the point I'm getting at, because I don't want you to take this out of context, the heart of God is that we are all one in Jesus. So any notion of preference is wrong in the eyesight of God. But one of the psychological ramifications of this inferiority myth that we're still dealing with is this notion that white is right. So that means that, that I've arrived if I, can, if I can live in what's considered a predominantly white neighborhood. Or if I could send my, my, my students to a predominantly white school, then that's a, that's a status symbol for me. That, that if, I can, if I can attend that church, that's... That's that I've, I've arrived. Because there's this psychological notion that, that white is right. 
And some of you are like, that's not true. Well, let's try it out. One of the most devastating proofs of this, this, this psychological impact, one of the most devastating things about it is the impact that it's had on kids. In 1947, Kenneth and Mamie Clark did a study called Racial Identification and Preference in Negro Children. I'm going to put that picture up. There it is. And what they showed, it was a study. They showed kids, white and black kids, different colored dolls. And they just asked them, they just asked them, hey, what doll is the nice doll? What doll is the pretty doll? And the results across the board for white and black kids was that it kept choosing a white doll. Which doll is the prettiest? The white doll. Which, tall, which doll is, 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 is the nice doll? The white doll. This is 1947. Some of you are thinking, oh, that's years ago. Well, in 2010, Anderson Cooper did the exact same study because what he wanted to find out was how far have we come as it relates to racial understanding and preference in 60 years? It's an image. Notice a little black girl pointing to the white picture. Which one is the nice, the nice doll? Which one, is, which one is the best one? She's pointing to the white picture. And I want you to understand, I'm not saying that, that white people are bad or there's anything wrong with, with, I'm not saying that. I'm saying understand the psychological ramifications of this myth. It's been devastating. And not only has it just been devastating on the surface, it's also been devastating because it has been perpetuated by several institutions. I'm closing. I'm hurrying up. But I want you to understand this as I close. Science perpetuated this myth. One of the worst books as it relates to, to racial preference that has ever been published in the history of our society is Charles Darwin's books, The Origin of Species and The Descent of Man. It was those two books where Charles Darwin suggested this evolutionary theory that we evolved from apes, but what was so incendiary about it was that in these books he suggested that as it relates to people of color, that we are more ape-like, more monkey-like, and, and that there is a higher plane of, of existence for white people. So this notion of, of oh, he's an ape, or, you, you know, you're a monkey. Science supported this myth. Godless science supported this myth. But not only did science support this myth, education perpetuated this myth. What do you mean education perpetuated this myth? Well, often, the first thing that black children are taught about their history in school is that you were a descendant of slaves, that you arrived in America from Africa. While on the other hand, white children are taught that they were creators of the Western civilization. So education perpetuates this myth because black kids leave history class, all right, knowing the names and the countries of, of, of white people that made significant accomplishments, and there's nothing wrong with that. But at the same time, they have no understanding of African-American individuals who also made significant accomplishments. So education perpetuates this myth because white kids leave saying, well, I know about Socrates, I know about Plato, and I know about this, that, and the other. And then you ask a, a same a black kid in the same class, what did you learn? Well, I learned that we were descendants of slaves. Black kids don't know anything about Benjamin Banneker. They don't know anything about Frederick Douglass. They don't know anything, even, even before the new world was created, they don't know anything about Queen T and M. Otep. They don't know anything about that. So they're coming out of history with this sense that, man, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm inferior. But not only did education perpetuate this myth, not only did science perpetuate this myth, the family perpetuated this myth. When I was in the fifth grade, my mom's job, she was in corporate American work for AT&T. When I was in the fifth grade, or going into the fifth grade, my mother's job relocated her to Houston, Texas. And my mom was climbing the corporate ladder, and so it was just this next opportunity for promotion. And so we moved to Houston, 
And we were the only black family in this white neighborhood. And I had a friend, as soon as I, we moved in, there was, a, there was a kid playing in the front yard. And, and uh, my mom said, well, go over there and introduce yourself. And his name was Evan. I'll never forget it. His name was Evan. And, and Evan and I became friends initially. We would, we would play together. He would come over to my house. We lived right next door. When I'd come home from school, I would go over to his house and we would play and that happened for, for maybe a couple of weeks, maybe in three, four weeks at the most. And I will never forget the day that I came home, and just like normal, I was going next door to see if Evan was home so that we could play, ride bikes, do the stuff kids do. And I remember that Evan came to the door, but he had a different look on his face than all of the other times. He came to the door, spit in my face and said, my daddy said I can't play with niggers. He came to the door, spit in my face and said, my daddy said I can't play with niggers. Now, just a couple of weeks before that, he was my homeboy. How in the span of playing with someone that was your friend do you get to this place where you feel comfortable enough to spit on them and to call them a derogatory term? Because his daddy said. Part of the reason that this racial divide has been perpetuated is because this myth is not only being taught in science and in education, but it is being passed down to children by people that they trust the most, their parents. After all, father knows best, right? Children are not going to question, for the most part, the belief system of their parents, not when they're young and they're formative and they're still trying to figure this thing out. What point are you making? Bishop, I'm making the point that hate and bias is learned behavior. I'm, I'm a little bit over my time. I want to give you a few more things and then I'm going to stop. I think maybe the 1030 service, I think they'll be a little bit more ready for this. The last thing I want to show you is that the media, actually the second before last thing, the media perpetuated this myth. Everybody this weekend talking about Avengers Endgame. Haven't seen it yet. Don't tell me if you've seen it. Can't wait to see it with my kids. But while this would probably end up being the highest grossing film of all time, possibly, in 1915, the highest grossing film in the silent era was a film by a man named D.W. Griffith, and the film was called The Birth of a Nation. And in this film, it portrayed black people, especially black men, as sex-crazed monsters in pursuit of white women. And so this film was used, listen to me, as a recruitment tool for the KKK. Because, because the KKK needed to rise up because we had to protect our white women. But while it was 1915 and while it was bad, Here's what makes it even worse. In 1992, the U.S. Library of Congress chose to preserve the film in the National Film Registry and declared it, listen to me, to be both historically and culturally significant. And for a very long time, as a result of this myth and this warped belief system for a very long time, the media would only portray black people as individuals who could entertain you by their dancing, who could make you laugh by their buffoonery, or who could entertain you because they were athletically gifted. That was it. Well, they can entertain us. They can make us laugh. But they're still inferior. And lastly, that I think is the worst of all, 
which is why for those that may feel like we don't even understand why you're teaching this stuff. I'm teaching this because we have got to get this right as believers. Why? Because lastly, the church perpetuated this myth. The church has been one of the biggest perpetuators of this myth in the history of the new world beginning with slavery. The church endorsed incorrect biblical interpretation. Why? Because it was economically beneficial during the slave trade. The church also endorsed this myth. Why? Because many of its parishioners bred slaves, owned slaves for profit and for pleasure. And weak, no backbone preachers who claimed to represent Christ would not teach the truth of this Bible. They would teach pieces of it because they didn't want to rustle any feathers. Even after slavery. The church perpetuated this myth. Why? Because it wouldn't allow people of color to worship in their churches. And the few churches that did only allowed people of color to sit in the back or in the balcony. The church perpetuated this myth because many of the colleges and universities were started by churches. And many of the colleges and universities at that time didn't even allow people of color to attend. If you want to understand the history of HBCUs that was also started by churches, they had to be started because our kids couldn't go to their universities that were started by the church. I want to be very clear. God's heart from the very beginning has been that we would be one, that there would be no division. That was God's heart from the very beginning. But I will say this, and, and, and maybe in the 1030 service, I'll really lean into this. I'm out of time now. But, but while God's heart is for us to be one, while that is my heart, while that is what we're hoping for and working for as a church, we want to honor God. One of the things that I will tell you is that the African-American church, in light of everything that I just shared with you, is one of the most significant modern-day miracles in this whole history. Because even during slavery, when slaves were, were only allowed to hear those select scriptures of preaching about slaves, be subservient to your masters, on the few days, one, one day, and one opportunity that they had to, to, to rest, slaves would huddle together. And, and that's where the, the, the black church came from. That's where it was born out of because in that huddling, they were able to examine all of Scripture. They were able to be, to be taught what the Bible really says about God's heart towards all people. And it, it was a cathartic place where they could worship, where they could be soothed by the presence of the Holy Spirit and be empowered and be built back up to go back into that hellish, horrific condition. And even after slavery, when when we were not allowed in, in white churches, the black church was a modern-day marvel because we taught Scripture. And, and even though we were being water-hosed and beaten and, 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 and spat on, we, we still taught what Jesus says, that we are supposed to turn the other cheek, that we are supposed to love our, our neighbors and pray for those who despitefully use you. So there are individuals who say, well, I don't, I don't understand the history of the African-American church. I hope you have a better understanding of it. I pray for the day that there will no longer have to be adjectives, the black church, the white church. I pray that we finally get to a place, y'all, where we are the church. <laughs> Hallelujah. Let me say this as I close. I'm over my time. I don't know if you've seen the more recent movie, The Birth of a Nation. We tried to get permission um, from the movie company to show a clip, and we didn't get permission, and so they'll probably just put the, there it is. I don't know if you've seen this movie. It's a story of Nat Turner, and Nat Turner was a slave who also, because he was intelligent and could read, 
He was also a preacher that was hired out by slave masters to go around from plantation to plantation and to preach those Ephesian or Colossians, even first Peter scriptures that exclusively spoke to slaves obey your masters. And the film just shows the agony and, and the frustration and the internal struggle that he had. But then later in the film, he changes. He no longer is willing to just preach those select scriptures. And we know the history tells us that, that Nat Turner leads an uprising. And I'm not trying to incite anything that is outside of the will of God. So please, I'm, I'm, and I'm saying that now for y'all, I know that there are going to be people that will take this message uh, and will try to use it to say, see, that's wrong. And that, that's not what I'm saying. The point that I'm suggesting to you, though, is the reason that there was a change in Nat Turner's heart was that he didn't stop reading those one or two scriptures. The reason there was a change in his heart is he kept reading all of the Bible. And I want you to get that because there may be some of you, part of the reason maybe that you were so quiet and digesting all of this is because maybe you struggle with this myth. Maybe you've had experiences like I've had where people incorrectly judge you or people incorrectly formed opinions about you because of your skin color. And, or maybe you've even wrestled with your own identity and God, am I, am I worth anything? And God, I don't know, can I, can I do anything beyond where I currently am? Is there hope for me? And what I want to tell you is don't stop reading just a few scriptures. Keep reading all of it. Because, because the more you read, the more you'll find out that you are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The more you read, the more you'll realize that you are blessed and highly favored. The more you read, the, the more you'll read that regardless of your skin color, you can do all things through Christ who gives you strength. The, the more you read, the more you'll understand that regardless of your skin color, you, you are blessed. You, you, are, you are loved. That, that Jesus had you on, your, on, on his mind as he went to the cross. That it is not about color. It is about your righteous identity that he prayed that finally we would get past all of this foolishness and understand what he was really doing on the cross. Yes, he saved our soul eternally. Yes. But he was also trying to reconcile us to one another. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Derby, I hope you're still there. I can't see you. The television is, is out there, so I um, hope, hope I didn't run out of time with Derby. Here's how I'm closing. I'm saying this. Can you put those scriptures on the screen? I want to show you this because I, I want to do my best to make sure that I don't give people a reason to believe that this message is to sow discord. It's to create understanding. The Bible says we perish because of a lack of knowledge. Past, present, and future. Say that with me. Past, present, future. Here, here's the past. From one man he made all nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. We all came from the same place. Let me say that again. We all came from the same place. Presently, Galatians 3.28 there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for we are all what? One in Christ Jesus. Presently, we should be one. We came from the same place. Jesus went to the cross that we might be one. And let me tell you what you're going to see when you get to heaven. Revelation 7 and 9, John says, and after this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every what? Every what? Every what? And every language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In the past, we all came from the same place. In the present, part of the work of Jesus Christ is that we would be one. Where are we going in the future? When you get to heaven... There won't be a white side of heaven. There won't be a black side of heaven. There won't be an Hispanic side of heaven. There won't be an Asian side of heaven. John said, I saw people from every nation, every tribe, every language, and they were all in the same place, bowing before the throne. 
Let me pray with you. Father, I took more time than I should have, but I felt such a burden to share this word with your people, and I thank you for it. Father, I pray that we would be one. Lord, I pray for this word to be planted in the hearts of your people so that we can at least have an understanding and begin to have the dialogue that doesn't continue to sow seeds of division, but brings us closer and closer together. Father, I pray that this word, for those that will watch the replay of this message or will hear this at another time, I pray that as they receive it, they would receive the heart with which you've given it to me to share with your people. Father, I pray that you would do a work in our country, but it's got to start in the church. Father, I pray that you would even use us however you want to, to help bring not only the dialogue to the forefront, but also, God, healing and breakthrough on this divisive issue of race. Father, I pray for every person under the sound of my voice that maybe had an incorrect perception of somebody else, or maybe they felt like they were incorrectly judged because of maybe this myth or maybe what they've been force-fed. And Father, I pray that you would break through all of that. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring peace in our hearts. Pray, Father, that you would do a work in us so that you can do a work through us for your glory. In the mighty name of Jesus, those who agree, would you say amen? Amen. 